Well, good morning. So very exciting to be with you this morning. My name is Larry Kayser, and uh, I am the marriage pastor here at Fellowship. I have a job that I love. We are in the process of building a small army of marriage mentor coaches in this place that will help us slowly but surely uh, build a community of wholehearted, gospel-centered marriages and homes. And that's what I spend the vast majority of my time and energy doing here at Fellowship, and I'm so grateful that I do. And I'm also, I have the privilege of serving on the elder board. So I love being here and love what God's given me to do here. And, you know, as I was listening to Carl do his Father's Day thing, I got to tell you that every single one of those little jokes he told, I am utterly guilty. (laughs) Every one of them. And you know, one of the things about the dad joke things, though, is my daughters have this little thing they call a courtesy laugh. And so I I would often earn a courtesy laugh um, for uh, a dad joke. But yeah, I am the dad of of four daughters, just the opposite of Carl's world. And all four of our lovely daughters are married. And uh, Anne and I are the privilege to be the grandparents of 11 grandchildren. Yeah, that's a, that's a great thing. They keep us very busy, for sure. And you know, when I realized I was going to get the opportunity to come up and share on Father's Day, you know, Carl did such a beautiful job uh, encouraging us as fathers, didn't he? Just great. I mean, I leave, you know, with my head a little higher and my, uh, my heart wanting to, to reach for a little bit more. And I want to tell you just a little bit about my uh, fatherhood, uh, my reality around fatherhood, both growing up and, and where it took me. And, you know, <laughs> like some of you, you know, there's probably a whole different, uh, gigantic variation to how we experienced our dads. Or some of us maybe didn't even have a father, and some of us had heroes for fathers, and some of us had incredibly painful relationships with our dad. So maybe like some of you, you know, my dad's life, I would say, left me with an unfulfilled spiritual void. More than anything, that spiritual peace. I really didn't learn anything growing up in my home about a God who loved me and wanted a relationship with me. That was completely foreign language to me. I knew nothing about, by example anyway, about what it really meant to selflessly love another person or put another person's needs ahead of your own. What I did learn was that men didn't admit, didn't admit weakness. They didn't. I also learned that men did life on their own. I learned that really well. I also learned that they could intimidate and control their environments with their anger and their words. And the reality is that when I got married, it's like I packed a suitcase unconsciously and just brought it right with me. I just brought it into my marriage and the family. And so the turning point for me in my life really, thankfully happened just before I got married, but the turning point for me was meeting Jesus. And I understood for the first time slowly that I was not just forgiven for my sins and mistakes, but that I actually was, could be loved through them. That was a huge thing. I now had a father who would love me unconditionally, a father who would pursue me in my absolute worst moments of fear and failure. I had a father who patiently helped me believe that I was loved all the time, really loved. 
And that belief over time slowly began to reshape my heart and it opened my life to others and ultimately changed my life as a husband and as a father to my children. On this Father's Day, like I know that many of you are gonna be honoring amazing dads today, I know that. While others of you really do feel the void and the distance of a strained relationship. But no matter what your relationship with your father is, that nagging feeling that you want him to care, that you want him to be proud, I would tell you that that can lead you to discover something greater, something bigger. So I wanna encourage you today to not get stuck in the disappointment you may face with your dad. And I want you to tune in and listen to an immortal whisper that's present in every man. And that voice is urging you to discover that there's a God who is first and foremost a father. He's a perfect father and he loves you and he cares for you and he believes in you. And he wants you to live under the waterfall of his blessings and his approval. And, and I say that, those last two paragraphs, learning that for me changed who I was and who I am and who I became. And so I know from personal experience that it's, in, it's incredibly possible and that God desires to move into our heart, mind, life, and soul in just that way as men and women. So I'm so glad you guys are here and happy Father's Day again. You know, last week when Rob introduced the Psalms to us, he described them as both poetry and God-breathed prayers to us. But they're also prayers we get to speak back to him. The Psalms powerfully, throughout the Psalms, they powerfully remind us that God doesn't just know where you are, God knows who you are, and he's there with you. Not just knows where you are, but he's actually there with you, he's present. So we're gonna spend the next few weeks moving around to some various Psalms with some different communicators over the next few weeks. And the beautiful thing about that is that each one of us have been free to choose a psalm that has really impacted our heart and our life. And so we get the privilege to come up and share just a little bit of what God has taught us, each one of us personally, through the psalm that we have chosen. So I've chosen Psalm 121. And you know, Psalms 120 through 134, there's 15 psalms there, and they're called the Psalms of Ascent. And the reason that those are called that is because they were essentially sung by pilgrims as they traveled from wherever they lived in the ancient Near East. Every time there was one of the, the big yearly festivals in Jerusalem, feast days, they would travel from wherever they were up into the hills of Jerusalem and to the city and they would sing these Psalms of Ascent as they climbed the mountains heading into Jerusalem. And so that's where they get their name. So I wanna begin to, or this morning, um, 
at Psalm 121, and I'm going to spend a couple minutes reading it again, and I want to invite you to read it along in your own Bibles, and I want you to notice a couple of things as I read it. One, there is an immediate almost recognition of need that the psalmist communicates, and two, there is the repeated confidence expressed of God's enduring presence. So as I read the psalm, I want you to circle, underline, highlight whatever you've got, your phone or iPad or Bible or whatever, how many times you see in this eight verses the promise that God will keep you or guard you or whatever translation you might have. Just, just take note of that as we, as the psalmist expresses that repeated confidence in God. Let me, let me read along here. I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from evil and he will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I wanna spend some time taking a closer look at the promises of this passage to all of us who live in an ever more vulnerable world. Look in verse one, it begins, it says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. You know, some commentators see that as a encouragement to lift our eyes out of the muck of our life, to lift our eyes out of the places of fear and sadness and struggle and to look up and to raise our gaze beyond our immediate reality. So some commentators take it that way. Other commentators see the hills that surround Jerusalem as a dangerous place. And since this was a Psalm of Ascent, they had traveled through those mountains to get to Jerusalem. And it was, they were often places that had robbers and thieves and just simply things along the way that were just not safe coming through the mountains. And I wanna give you one more potential perspective that's in a sense similar to that one. But this is a Jerusalem-based Psalm. And so the Psalmist is obviously aware of the geography around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on a plateau surrounded by seven mountains, hills, large hills, but it is incredibly, I mean, it's just lit, literally encircled by it. So no matter what direction you come into Jerusalem from, you're coming up over a mountain, or if you're trying to leave, you're leaving over a mountain. Now, the hills were so, and are so close to the city that there's almost no valley between the mountains and the city. And in the ancient Near East, what that created was a really, really difficult struggle to ever defend the city. So they were constantly vulnerable to attack from the outside. And uh, it's really quite amazing just how incredibly vulnerable they were over, over the course of their history. So during Jerusalem's long history, it's been attacked 52 times. It's been captured and recaptured 44 times. It's been besieged 23 other times and utterly completely destroyed twice. 
Here's the truth about that city is they were vulnerable. To live there was vulnerable. When's the last time that you felt vulnerable? Or maybe, maybe you feel vulnerable this morning. The reason I chose to talk about this psalm is because I feel vulnerable. You know, in the last 10 years or so of my life, some things have happened in our world that have put me in a place where I'm thinking about things, responding to things, battling back certain fears and anxieties that I simply never thought about 10 years ago. And so I, for the first time in my life, I have felt vulnerable and it's impacted me a great deal. Just before um, my wife and I moved here to Nashville, I uh, had served at a church for 12, 13 years and I was um, very um, abruptly fired by my, actually our closest, some of our very closest friends. And it was a church that we had planted from the very beginning. And when that happened to me, I was virtually set adrift. I, I ended up going through a season where I was unemployed for nearly a year and a half. And we had two kids in college, two following close behind. And as it turned out, not very far away from a whole stream of weddings just ahead. And so it was, uh, it was a really difficult time in our life. And our house used to have a finished basement and I had a little office space down there. And I spent an awful lot of time, you know, down in that basement, um, just struggling with my future and my present, and my identity, vulnerability in a new way. And then, just a few years ago, my uh, sweet wife of 40 years, Anne, you know, we, we had a phone call on Good Friday a few years ago, and it was from an oncologist, and uh, told us that my wife uh, has an incurable form of lymphoma. And uh, it's in remission, and she's doing great. We had an oncology appointment Friday and got an all clear, which we're really excited about. But the reality, thank you. But you know, the reality of it, and I don't understand all the medical stuff and, and we're trying really hard to trust God. I don't know if it's gonna come back or not. I only know what the medical people are telling us. And what I would just say about that is that it's a constant, it's a constant tug of war between our faith and our frailty. You know, between the reality of this life and the one that we believe, hope for, and are certain of into our future. And so we're vulnerable in a new way. And here's what I know is true. If I were to go around the room this morning and ask 50 of you, where do you feel vulnerable? I mean, we would have stories of every kind in this room. We would feel vulnerable about some of our kids. We'd feel vulnerable about our health. We'd feel vulnerable about our career, about our financial situation, about caring for aging parents. We would, we, there would just be myriads of things that we would feel vulnerable. And here's what I, I wanna, and this is what God is slowly trying to help me learn, is that vulnerability is an invitation to connect 
with my own heart and with God. It's to recognize the things that I'm afraid of, to recognize my desires and to contend in my own heart with the Lord with, the, with, with my own choices based on what I know is true, what I believe is true about my relationship with God. And right, you know, nobody's belief, had, nobody's belief exists without doubt, right? It's kind of a strange thing. Without faith, you can't really have doubt. And so every one of us in our brokenness, you know, no matter the maturity, years, or strength of our relationship with God, you know, there are all ways that we might struggle sometimes with, gosh, just a little doubt here, or a little doubt there that invades our, our heart and our consciousness. So the psalmist gazes up at the mountains surrounding Jerusalem, and I think he is keenly aware that they're vulnerable. And the vulnerability sparks the psalmist to ask a question that he answers for the rest of the psalm. So back in verse one, it says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. And then he says, where does my help come from? That question drives the rest of this psalm. And that is the question that I ask all the time in my moment of vulnerability. Where does my help come from? Because the things that I'm wrestling with often, the, I need help from something bigger than me outside of myself and yet intricately intimate with myself all at the same time. So the word help, where does my help from is the Hebrew word ezer. And it's a strong word. It expresses the indispensability of the one who bears that name, helper. And it carries the idea of doing for another what they cannot do for themselves. And this word is used by far most often to describe God and what he does for his people in the scriptures. It's used for other things too, but predominantly it's used to describe what God does for us. So where does my help, my help, my ezer, where does that come from? And what's a great question. Does my help come from my abilities? Does my help come from my health? Does my help come from my bank account? Does my help come from my station in life, my heritage, how I grew up, my great health, my good looks? Where does my help come from? Because the truth is every other thing I would trust in life does not have the power to deliver. It doesn't. And I love, man, the way the psalmist answers this question what the rest of the psalm describes. In verse two, it says, my help comes from the Lord, but he doesn't stop there. He, the next line's an exclamation point. My help comes from the Lord. And who is that? The maker of heaven and earth. So when the psalmist is writing to the original audience of his own world, he is calling them back to the very creation of everything. So he is saying to them, I want you to understand, your helper isn't just a really skilled guy. Your helper isn't some pagan God. Your helper is the maker of heaven and earth, the same God who spoke order into chaos, the same God 
who brings comfort in the midst of vulnerability, that same source that created Adam from the dust of the ground as he breathed life into his nostrils, the same God who took his rib from his side and created Eve, his suitable Ezer, his helper, the same God who seeks to meet us in our places of fear and weakness. And quite simply, this is what I love. The psalmist is telling us that God is bigger than our problems, bigger than our fears. He's an Ezer capable of giving us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's what the psalmist is trying to tell his people. He's trying to encourage them with who this helper actually is. So the rest of the psalm gives us concrete images and illustrations of how God seeks to walk with us in our struggles. So the second image in here, verse three, it says, he will not let your foot slip. You know, they're, they're potentially coming up and down mountains or even walking through Jerusalem, which is mostly limestone, wet. If it gets wet, it's very slippery. And so this image, again, this is a concrete image for the original hearers, that they understood, you know, whether you're on a, a scary mountain trail or in a wet, um, steep hill in the city of Jerusalem, it's like God has your hand, like you had the hand of your four-year-old, and that four-year-old slips, but they don't fall because you've got their arm. They might lose their balance. You might have to drag them up a little, but they don't fall because you have their arm. So the psalmist is giving the, the Israelites concrete images for them to relate to this God who is their Ezra, their helper. I also want you to notice that at this point in the psalm, the pronouns change. So, you know, many times when you see the English word you in your Bible, I would say more often than not, it is referring to a plural you. It's referring to a community of believers. It, it, it's, that's far more often than the other way around. But in this Psalm, as the pronouns change, this is not an abstract promise to an unknown group of people. In the text, this text, every time the word you is used, it's the singular intimate you. These words are for you and they're for me to breathe back to God. It's just interesting to me that that pronoun change happens there. God is fully aware, fully present, and he's conscious, he knows us. And then the next uh, passage here, verse four, it says, he who keeps you will not slumber. Indeed, the, who, the one who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God, just think about what that means. You know, we have a God who never sleeps. So why does, why does that matter? Well, you know, in 1 Kings 18, there was this big contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? They both built altars to sacrifice to their gods and they were waiting for them to literally come down to the heavens to strike fire and consume the sacrifices. And you know, nothing happens, of course, to the offering that's to Baal. And Elijah begins to taunt the prophets of Baal. And he says, maybe you need to wake your God up. Maybe he's asleep up there. And what's powerful to me about that is, can I just suggest to you that sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not him. We are not God. Once a day, God sends every one of us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency 
to think that we are in control and that our work is indispensable. Sleep reminds us of our need, but we have a God who is ever present, who never sleeps. And we can rest, we can rest, we can close our eyes because God never does. I just, again, these are concrete things to humanity, human beings in a language that we can hear and to make our own. So it goes on in verse five here. It says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. I want to talk about the second line of, the, of those two verses uh, first in verse six. The sun will not strike you by day, nor moon by night. You know, that's a really powerful, again, maybe a picture here to these Israelites as they find themselves vulnerable to the sun and to the moon. How is that an issue for them? Well, the Israelites, you're talking about a desert dwelling people. If you think back in their history in the wilderness, in Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, it says this, by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. God was present. So in the daytime, God provided a pillar of cloud and that shielded the sun in the searing heat of the desert. He was a cooling shade to them as they navigated their way through the incredibly difficult desert terrain in that heat. And then at night, he was a pillar of fire. And so the desert could get very cold at night. And obviously it's pitch dark out there. And so he became both warmth and light in the middle of the night. And the early rabbis used to talk about the picture was like those two pillars that were like God's legs that literally walked alongside the people in the wilderness, fire and the clouds. That's just the rabbinical sources used to sort of describe that to the original, for the original hearers. So let me go back to backwards now in verse five. And I want to talk about the first part of that verse, that the Lord is the shade at your right hand. I really want you to get this part because 70-ish percent of the images in the Bible are desert images. And the truth is the desert is a merciless and unforgiving place to live. So I want to show you a picture here for just a minute of a picture that's taken down in the southern part of Israel in the Sinai. And uh, if you could do a 360 panoramic view from around there, all you would see in every direction, you'd see brown, you'd see some shades of gray, you'd see some sharp, steep mountains, you'd see a lot of rock, you would see some dry riverbeds, and what you would basically see is a land that is virtually uninhabitable without some help outside of ourselves. So imagine in the ancient Near East, you know, before there's any technology, you got these people, whether it was the Israelites walking as a, as a nation state or whether it's just individual families trying to traverse this desert, you could not survive there without supernatural intervention, you would die. 
And the Israelites were very, very familiar with the desert. Now, let me show you another picture of a thing that's called a broom tree. And it's actually, in most cases, more like a bush. This is actually a fairly large one. Most of the time they're, I don't know, 20, 30% smaller than that. But that is, uh, in many cases, when people were traversing in the desert, this really became what their shade was. So when, uh, when Hagar was uh, asked by Abraham to leave and she went out and she took her son Ishmael because she thought they were just gonna die out there, she put him under a shade tree. Well, it was this, it was a broom tree. And then when Elijah comes after his great victory and then he's sad and depressed and God makes a, a little tree grow up and he puts it underneath so he can sit in the shade. It was a broom tree. And so there is this idea that when people were out dwelling or walking in the desert or shepherds were out in the desert, sometimes in the heat of the day, this would be the only thing they could see for miles that would create any shade. And oftentimes they were small enough that the only thing a shepherd could do is he might lay down on his back with his head up as close to the trunk as he could get it. And sometimes the, the shade would go from here to here. And what that was is that God gave him just enough shade for today. Just enough for today. And you know, the way that we are called to live with God, just think for a minute about all the things in the Bible that remind us of God's daily provision, whether it was manna from heaven, right? If they tried to collect more, what happened? It rotted. Because the whole point was, God was trying to say to them, I'm gonna give you enough for today. So that's what their shade, it was enough for today. So, God's telling us that in our worst moments, his shade is never farther from you than his right hand. That's the proximity to shade. So when I lost my job and I was sitting in my basement by myself a lot in the dark, one day I went down there and there was a little envelope on my keyboard down there and it said, opened it up and said this, dear Larry, I believe in you. I know that you're a man of character. I know that you'll work hard even during this time of confusion and hurt to care for our family. Thank you for your willingness to do whatever is necessary. I love you. I'm glad to be on your team. Love, Ann. Do you know what that was? That was my broom tree. That day, that was my shade. It lasted longer than a day, but it was my shade. And it, it's a, that shade is, in the desert, any expression of shade becomes a constant reminder of God's presence with us. The shade at his right hand, it's close. He's in proximity to us. Let's move on here to verses seven and eight. It says, the Lord will keep you. He's keeping us every passage, isn't he? He's keeping us from all evil. He'll keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I'm really glad seven and eight are together because seven is troubling. The Lord will keep you from evil. It's a hard verse. The only way that that verse, that I, I can reckon that verse is to understand that the Lord is the keeper of my soul. We obviously don't get shielded from all evil or pain 
or loss or grief or any of that, right? There's no promises for any of that. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be feeling vulnerable this morning because we instinctively know that that is true. So when I look at my own life and the lives of so many people and you, know, you watch the news and all these things, sometimes you can be almost overwhelmed. Sometimes that's the places where you're going, gosh, God, why don't you, why don't you make yourself known? Why don't you stop this? I think those things sometimes. And here's what I, I know. I mean, I don't really know the answer to that question, but what I do know is true is that the Israelites could look backwards over the course of their history that God just kept building. He kept building. He kept building. And he anchored their belief in their, in their past. There was an anchor. There was an anchor from the scriptures that were saved and copied over the years and from the active works of God. There was this constant building of a portfolio of belief that was anchored in their past. And you and I have a future that's anchored in our past. And that is so important. As a matter of fact, I'd say to you that apart from anchoring our heart and our life and, and putting our eyes in the right place, I don't think there's any way to cope with all the pain and loss in the world. It's too hard. It's too big for us. But we have a God who never sleeps and never slumbers. We have a God, a God who is the shade at our right hand. We have a God who is the keeper of our soul. And we have a savior. We have a savior who had the final word. It is finished. And then he rose from the dead and defeated death. And so our anchor is in this glorious truth, 2,000 years in our rearview mirror, that the God of the universe came and claimed the final victory over death. So he is the keeper of our soul. And when we spend our time only looking at the hills and wondering where we're vulnerable, wondering where the next attack is coming from, God is trying to tell us in whatever language we can hear, it's okay, take a nap. It's okay, I'm your shade. It's okay, I am the keeper of your soul. And you know, sometimes when we feel really dry or you feel like God's not saying anything, and you're trying, you're trying to read your Bible, you're trying to listen to worship music, you're trying to be quiet, or you're trying to do whatever you need to do to get God's, to like speak to your heart and, and it's quiet. What I wanna say to you is, the very drive and longing inside you to find and to reach out is evidence of God's presence. And I don't understand sometimes why there's silence, but, but the fact that you, seek it, desire it, long for it, even get angry by its absence is in a weird way of a reminder that none of us are walking alone and that God's speaking to our hearts, even sometimes in the silence. But the thing I'm, you know, verse eight, I'm so grateful that verse eight is there because the concluding word is the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth. And then with what's the last word? forevermore. Men and women, if you're a follower of Jesus, there is the only way to not have your eyes buried on the anxiety of the hills 
is to know that you have a God who's promised eternal life, has promised relationship with him through this life and into the next, and our anchor is rooted in the promise of forevermore. It's a reminder to everybody who reads this that God is bigger than our present circumstances. So we're told that our helper created everything. And then we're told that this helper is the keeper of our soul and who will be in this place forevermore. So we're bookended between the keeper of everything, the maker of everything, and the keeper of our soul forevermore. So I just want to invite you this morning, you know, don't just look at the trouble in the hills, but in the one who is beyond that, the one who's the keeper of our soul. So I want to bring our time a bit to close this morning, and we're going to celebrate communion together this morning. And I want to get you thinking about what we've just talked about a little bit as we consider communion. You know, every time we celebrate communion, we are tangibly reminding ourselves of where our help comes from, right? Every single time we do this, that's really what we're saying. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who has promised that forevermore. 2 Corinthians 13, 4 says, for to be sure, he was crucified in weakness. That word can also be translated vulnerable. And it was a weakness he gladly chose, right? Yet he lives by God's power. That's our invitation from God. Likewise, we are weak in him, but by God's power, we will live with him and our dealing with you. There's an invitation from God to trust him. There's an invitation from God to seek shade when we're in the desert. There's an invitation from God to know that he won't let our foot slip. There's an invitation from God forevermore. So those, uh, if the ushers want to go ahead and you guys could start passing out the elements, that'd be great. And as you guys take the elements, I want you to think about two questions, okay? Some of you are sitting in a season of vulnerability and I just want to say, what is God asking you to trust him for this morning? Where are you vulnerable and where do you need to talk to God about what you're trusting in? And the second question is, what fear or deep longing in your heart is an obstacle to that trust? And maybe have a time of confession as you wait and receive the elements. And then when you get the elements, just hold them and we'll come back and take them all together. Come behold the wondrous mystery 
In the dawning of the King, He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, see the light of life has come. Look to Christ to condescend to conflict to ransom us come behold the wondrous mystery he the perfect son of man in his living in his suffering never trace nor stain of sin the true and better idol come to save the hellbound man Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law in him we stand come behold the wondrous mystery Christ the Lord upon the tree In this stead of ruined sinners Hangs the Lamb in victory See the price of our redemption See the Father's plan unfold Bringing many sons to glory Grace unmeasured Love so as we take the elements here in just a moment, you can take the bread. And again, I just want to encourage you, what is it that this is reminding us of today? Forevermore the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who promises to keep our soul forevermore, came and expressed his promise to humanity by coming and breaking his body and surrendering his blood. So the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the body and he broke it into two and he said, this is my body, which has been broken, and it will be given up for you. So let's take the bread together. same way we are reminded every time we share communion that what we believe and what we hold fast to and who we live for and the Spirit of God that speaks to us within our heart and mind on a regular daily basis is bigger than our pain is bigger than our fears is stronger than our vulnerabilities and he demonstrated that on our behalf as he was crucified, choosing vulnerability 
and shedding his blood for us. So, and he tells us that every time we do this, we drink this cup and do it in remembrance of him. Let's drink together. Let's stand together and sing this final verse. Come behold the wondrous mystery Slain by death, the God of life But no grave could e'er restrain him Praise the Lord Faithful God, you are faithful. 
love that song, You Are Never Alone. Do you know, if you're in Christ this morning, that is simply true. You know, if God has spoken to your heart through the song this morning, through the Father's Day expression, through the message, do you know what that was, right? That's the Spirit of God within you laying claim to the truth that you're not alone, ever. If you were in this room all by yourself and the Spirit of God spoke to your heart, it would lay claim to the truth that you're never alone. And the enemy, of course, wants us to believe that we're alone. But the truth is, in Christ, it's not true. So one of the ways that I would love maybe for you to think about as you leave this morning, expressing the fact, maybe to a brother or sister, that they're not alone, who could you be shade to today or this week? Who could you call or write a note or drop a meal off or a, whatever it is that God would lay on your heart, but to think about the tangible expression. And you know what it feels like on a really hot day when you find a shady spot with a breeze. You could stay there a long time, can't you? So who could you be shade to? as you leave here this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the anchor we have in your word. Thank you that we're never alone. Thank you that we have a God who created the universe and all that's in it as the keeper of our soul forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you want to have prayer this morning, we have folks up here to pray with you and they would love to do that. Always invited. Or if you want to talk about your relationship with Jesus, anything, we are here and always excited to do that. So thank you. Have a great day the rest of your day. God bless.